Welcome to Science Night, presented by the River Power Podcast Film. Welcome, everybody, to the 2020 Science Night Halloween Spectacular. This is part of a crossover episode with our sister podcast, Pulp, from Beyond the Veil. You can hear the episode that I helped uh, Cody create, where we created a cryptid, and then he created a narrative around that cryptid. It's an amazing episode. I had so much fun. Go listen to it after listening to this episode. So, there's a lot going on here. Let's really quickly talk about it. Cody and I are going to start this off by talking about death. But in like a kind of a fun way. Specifically, we talk about the Victorian obsession with death and what kind of created that phenomenon in that culture at that time and how that spread out to the wider world. We're also going to specifically talk about premature burial and grave robbing. And if you stay tuned to the end, I'm not going to tell you what the timestamp is. You're going to have to listen to the whole thing. There will be a dramatic reading of Edgar Allan Poe's premature burial. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. If this is something you want to hear more of on the River Power Podcast Mill or specifically on this feed, let me know. Go to our website at scinite.com and also check out this episode page on that website. I'm going to have links to all kinds of creepy Halloween articles that link very nicely with this episode. Please enjoy the 2020 Science Night Halloween Spectacular. Welcome to the Science Night Halloween Spectacular, and I could not do this alone. I had to bring in somebody that knows all of the scary stories to tell in the dark. Thank you so much for joining me, Cody Sullivan, the man from Pulp from Beyond the Veil. Thank you so much, James. Good to be here. Since this is the spookiest of seasons, I decided that we have to talk about death. But because this is like a science podcast and we'd be high-minded and talk about like empirical things, I think we need to talk about the way that the Victorians thought about death. We cannot start talking about the Victorian era and why it is spooky without explaining why they were super obsessed with death. And there's a couple things that really just form a feedback loop and play off of each other. But one of the things we need to mention off of the jump is that people died a lot. And they died really young, and they died in horrific ways. There's a lot of other things we're going to be like, well, this is part of the reason why. But if everyone just like lived to their 80s and died of natural causes, they probably wouldn't be that obsessed with it. The average lifespan for a... Man of the upper crust. So we're talking about your Prince's Albert and your Dukes of wherever. Uh, 44 years old is when they were expected to die. And for tradesmen, which I... That's like a merchant. That's like a, that's a guy who sells stuff, doesn't really work in a field all day or anything. Sure. 25 years old, that's plenty. And if you're a laborer, they're going to make it to 22, which... I can't imagine that being a misinterpretation of data. And I was kind of shocked to see that it got that high because of how many children were working in factories. I was going to say, I mean, 11 years old, midlife crisis. (laughs) Maybe you're thinking of a career switch. Maybe you get into the loom business and you start working around giant looms (laughs) all the time. Keep that in mind with everything we're about to talk about with the Victorians. People were dying extremely young. But to conceptualize this as a formal 
way of mourning someone, we do have to talk about the person from whom the Victorian era gets their name. Queen Victoria is kind of the reason that Victorian fashion and mourning practices are widely accepted and have like been so ingrained into English culture from the early and mid um, industrial revolution. Her husband died uh, and for the next half of Queen Victoria's life, who lived for an incredibly long time for this era, uh, she was officially in mourning. If you see a picture of Queen Victoria past the point when Prince Albert died, she is wearing black. And we should probably talk about like what officially in mourning meant. Cody, do you want to you want to enlighten us on the official mourning observance for this period? I think that specifically in uh, Queen Victoria's case, her period of 40 years of mourning centered sort of around dressing in black every day, obviously, but also keeping their home exactly the way it was on the day that he died. Each morning, servants would set out Albert's clothes, bring hot water for his shaving cup, scoured his chamber pot and took the bed linens away. I mean, they did this for 40 years or so after he died. And so it's sort of like a ritual. It's this sort of ritual every day of giving your grief a platform. And in Victoria's case, when you're the queen, what you do is heavily observed by the common folk. And her openness to grieve and to be in mourning certainly had an, like a profound effect on the average English person. It is kind of interesting as we trickle down into the lower strata of English society because you got to also remember like when a loved one is dying that is also a wage earner dying in the household so you see less and less periods of official mourning as you go down that strata. I think the standard code of mourning for women at that time uh, lasted two and a half years according to this article that I read. So for 12 months and a day they would wear Black uh, dresses made of drab fabric and including a cap and uh, a black ribbon would be tied to their dress. And after two months, two flounces could be added to the skirt. And after a year of mourning, the women could start to change their drab fabric to silk and change that color into lavender or mauve or violet. Uh, but what is particularly confusing to me uh, as a 21st century person is that they were also forbidden from socializing during this 28-month period. So really their grief was something that was on display for everyone to see, but still a very personal thing. They were in this period of mourning and it was expected of them for two years, which in that time is a pretty large chunk of your life, nearly 10%. So <laughs> sure, yeah, not great. Yeah. So I think we've established that there was a large impact on the internal and external cultures of British society uh, by these death and mourning practices. But Cody, I think you're a little bit better equipped to answer, did this go forward into popular culture at the time as well? Absolutely it did, because during this period of rapid industrialization that's happening, one of the, I guess, net positives of this revolution was the increased rates of literacy among common folk. And so now you have a group of people who are all able to read, all uh, want to read, but they need something that is cheap and readily accessible, potentially serialized so that they can get their story every week and flip through it. And I think that that is what sort of birthed the Penny Dreadful, these serialized stories with fanciful illustrations that usually revolved around macabre or true crime stories, you know, detectives chasing murderers or other seedy things that would be happening in England at the time. And it really sort of became part of the culture without like television or anything like that. The forensic files of the day could be these detective stories, even though they were fictitious, they were immensely popular and they were cheap and readily available. So that's great. I love pretty dreadfuls. I love the entire feel of the genre, like spring heeled Jack and these, 
these creatures that are macabre, but also like kind of silly is like right where I need to be when I'm trying to think about spooky Victorian stuff. But did that bleed into nonfiction and uh, popular reporting at the time? Yeah, and I think it's something that we should all be a little bit familiar with today. I think we're seeing a resurgence in the obsession with true crime. That existed very strongly during the Victorian times. I think of Jack the Ripper as the most famous serial killer, certainly not the first, but his story, the lore around um, the actual events that happened were being monitored and publicized through various newspapers. And again, the literacy rate was higher now. Average folk are picking up a newspaper and what do they want to read? They want to know about the killer who's on the loose. And it became such a profound part of the society with everybody watching that this Jack the Ripper character, he penned the From Hell letter, just where he named himself Jack the Ripper. But in doing so, uh, sending it to the police station, he knew that it was going to get picked up by the newspapers at the time, that people on the street would fear him, would fear the story, but at the same time be unable to not consume this horrible atrocity that he was committing pretty much on a nightly basis. I think that we see how the official culture, like the monarch on down display of this kind of concern and acknowledgement of death, feeding into popular culture becoming readily available with easy means of publication, and then the ability for a larger amount of the population to read it has made it from a curiosity to like a full on obsession. And there is evidence of people saving for their funeral at very young age, at childhood or people from like the merchant class where there's like a little bit of leisure time. Uh, women were expected to have their own burial shroud that they made as part of their dowry to their next family. So it wouldn't be a burden for the family to create the burial shroud because it's like, well, you know, four or five more years and, and you're probably going to need it. So uh, why not just get that taken and care of right away? And that seems really like morbid to us today, maybe. But you have to remember that even the decorations of the time, I mean, the death masks that people would get of partner uh, when they passed away or photography becoming something that people could take a, a picture with somebody who had just passed away and then keep that keepsake on their wall that seems like right on the line of being maybe a little bit macabre, but again, it's it's not stigmatized. Uh, grief is not a stigma at all. It is very, very much open wearing your heart on your sleeve or literally your flounces on your dress for everybody to see. So we've set up that this curiosity with death, this formal etiquette has become an obsession. And what we're going to talk about now is some of the things that were more related to death itself uh, and the practices around it. And and actually like the phobias that have come about because of this continual thought uh, and presence of death in your mind. The first thing we're going to talk about is premature burial or uh, being buried alive. And I don't think that that is something that we consider a major phobia as in the we are constantly in dread of it but i don't think it's also something that people would want to happen to them even in in the modern era no it gives me the creeps it still gives me the creeps uh and sure. i haven't i haven't really thought about it until we started talking about this show but yeah it gives me the creeps to think about being interned and trapped in a little box one of the reasons is that with the industrial revolution uh, science and like the scientific method was starting to really catch up in the medical field. So we were able to decide whether this person was living or dead in ways that were not possible uh, before this era. But we were also not that good at it that we could definitively say this person was still alive. So basically you have the 
kind of perception of these catatonic states that this person was actually still alive. And, oh no, maybe 20 years ago, this person would have been buried alive. And once a human can perceive as something being possible, it then becomes inevitable, right? (laughs) Sure. The thought that this was happening as a commonplace, like, matter of fact was way blown out of proportion in literature probably didn't happen i'm so i'm going to put you at ease cody it didn't happen that often there are uh tales of it happening in um the 1600s the 1700s those are almost definitely apocryphal there is very little evidence around it Uh, There was a case of a little bit of an oopsie in 1885. I was going to say, why do I not feel better when you say that, yeah, they're mostly blown out of proportion, mostly untrue. That doesn't make me feel too much better. (laughs) Yeah, so, you know, there was a corpse that was exhumed, meaning that they pulled the casket out of the ground and this happened fairly odd more often than i realized in that era it turns out that it was just commonplace for graves to be reopened especially in europe where land was not super available and the bones would be taken out so somebody else could be buried there Uh, and that's where you get like the ossuaries of the catacombs in, in paris and some of the other great great areas where you can see some really creepy but extremely beautiful art with human bones but i digress in 1885 a body was exhumed in uh buncombe county north carolina this person was moved around within their coffin and they could find evidence of they called it distressed areas of the inside of the coffin so i'm assuming like scratches and everything uh so lots of evidence that this happened but you know that's like it wasn't happening every year. I mean, except it did also happen in 1886 in Woodstock, <laughs> Ontario, Canada, where they exhumed a body that the person was like curled up into the fetal position in the grave. And that's something that decomposition just wouldn't have accounted for. But it definitely doesn't happen anymore. Um, except for when it happened in 2014 in Macedonia, <laughs> where the body and grave of a 45-year-old woman, children reported screams happening from below the ground. Nope. And the police were like, oh, these kids are just <laughs> messing with us. But it turned out, no, that person was actually buried alive. But that's like a one-off, and it doesn't happen every year, except it did happen in 2015 again in... in uh, Yeah. (laughs) In another part of Greece, there are some wild things that have come about because of the phenomenon of this phobia. Even in our sleepy little Vermont, you can go to the Evergreen Cemetery in New Haven and visit the grave of Timothy Clark Smith. You can do this today and you can see a great example of what they called a safety coffin which is a coffin uh, that was made out of metal. So it was a little bit more, or at least had some metal bracing in it. So it was a little bit more rigid than the standard wooden coffin. It had like a super nice interior. So it was comfortable. So I got, you know, I guess like, you know, if you're gonna, if you're gonna wake up, if you're gonna wake up, you might as well have pillows. Exactly. A nice velvet lined. It might've been velveteen, but Mm. uh, it was nice. And then specifically in this coffin there is a window that extends from the ground level down into the coffin so that you could if you wanted to go and check up on him and make sure that he is as dead as you remembered him before and now in this case he was not buried alive so what you saw is the slow decomposition over time which is like almost worse than the thought of of your loved one being buried alive yeah imagine if you're still the guy that has to go check on him you know a year a year into him being interned and you're like yep still still decompositions (laughs) happening i I mean i think i think think he's not coming back yeah i think after a point you can probably start like going every other year (laughs) (laughs) 
And probably my favorite of these fail-safes called the Grave Bell. So we have a bell that sits at the uh, level above ground, just a normal bell, Mm -hmm. with a rope that extends down into the coffin. And the concept here is that when one awakes from their premature burial and finds themselves to be alive within a coffin, uh, they can pull on this bell and alert the nearby, I don't know, person hanging out in a cemetery, um, which actually I make fun of that, but that was super, super common yeah, uh, during this period right? of time. The, yeah, absolutely. Or just yeah. people hanging out in in uh, cemeteries, especially in urban cemeteries. Like, mm. There's a whole movement to make these cemeteries more like a park, Partly because people would just want to go and as officially in mourning and go and visit the grave, but also because there's just not like a lot of green space in London during this time. And mm. um, while like soot would still be raining upon you, uh, you would at least have like a nice tree to yeah. look at. Yeah, some grass under your feet. I, I really hope that these bells were not affected by wind a lot because. Mm. Man, I don't know if I want to be walking through a cemetery with a bunch of these and just hear a lot of clanging all of a sudden. Yeah, if you're the caretaker for a graveyard and you get woken up at 3 in the morning because one of the bells is ringing, uh, you go outside and the first thing you do is see if it's a blustery day. And if it is, then maybe you just go back inside. Maybe you're the worst Maybe you're the worst caretaker of a graveyard in, in London's history. But you just say, ah, it's the wind. I'm going to go back to sleep. I can't imagine that children were any less precocious than they are now. So you know that these bells were just ringing off the hook Mm. by kids that would hide behind the nearest tombstone thereafter. And, you know, I think what everyone is probably thinking and like screaming into their podcatcher of of choices like, oh, this is where Dead Ringer comes from. This is where Dead Ringer... I actually thought that too, but I looked it up and that is not the origin for the phrase dead ringer. It's always meant exact duplicate. I think like a history teacher in high school told me this and we're just gonna say you were wrong. So we have established all these things to make it easy for one who finds themselves alive to escape their predicament. But... We also have to talk about another thing that led to some different safety devices that you would find when walking around the cemetery, and that is grave robbing. So the reason that grave robbing happened, it was a business practice. What's the custodian name for a grave robber? A resurrectionist? Is that what you would say? Like, I am not a, I'm not a grave robber, I'm a resurrectionist. Oh, actually, that was like a rank. The... The resurrection man or a resurrectionist was somebody who had had uh, performed to such a high level at robbing one's grave that they could do it in a matter of 15 minutes. And they would have like an army of people to help them during this. Gone in 60 seconds would be a totally different film if it was gone in 15 minutes and it's your uh, loved one's corpse. Here's the thing. They were also very astute in their knowledge of British common law because they knew enough to not take the possessions because that would be considered theft of possessions, like petty theft. But since technically a body had no value, you were not committing theft. So, like, if you were caught grave robbing, that became its own separate crime. Mm -hmm. But then you were not also doubling down on stealing valuable. Because, of course, the British upper crust would have been way more pissed off if you steal their heirloom diamond that they also stole from, like, indigenous people around the world. But we're not (laughs) getting into that right now. These bodies were being taken for what, you know, seemed like, I don't want to say altruistic because it's terrible. Every instance of this is a terrible thing and those people should have been punished. But they were selling the bodies to medical schools for the purposes of teaching anatomy. There are so many instances of this that are not fabricated that it's almost like the fabrications are less interesting 
But there are like crazy things that have happened because of this, including the very first riot in the history of these United States was due to a body that was resurrected and stole and uh, sold to the uh, College of Medicine in Manhattan. And I think the the last thing we have to talk about as far as like the resurrectionist was the Burke and Hare murders. Like totally insane. Write a movie about it. It's not going to be nearly as crazy as the true story where Burke and Hare were innkeepers in England, but they had this whole inn that was full of people who would sleep at night. Mm. So, you know, hey, why not go and suffocate them and then sell those suffocated bodies to the medical college nearby? I have to respect their entrepreneurial, just, I don't know, the cavalierness of which they decided, yes, let's make some money. Let's suffocate a few old people in the inn why not it'll it'll give us bigger turnarounds if we do that than if we have to actually go into the cemetery and dig up a body like they would have been a hit in america i think where they went wrong is they started from a lower class and tried to up jump in english society which is something that is still not easy to do foiled by social mobility and to this day the act of and this is a long one but this is an actual law the act of killing somebody by means of suffocation for the purpose of selling their body to a medical school for profit, because I guess you can't just break even, uh, is called burking. That is a crime that is still on the books in British common law. And we talked about some of the things that were meant to have you escape from the grave, but there are tons of things from this era that would be designed to keep you in the grave so you have these grave cages and the burial vault at the time was a way to stop grave robbers is that like a mausoleum what is a burial vault no a burial vault is specifically that it is something that is either metal or concrete that you'll put a casket inside so today typically it's because they use like heavy machinery in cemeteries and you can't like drive a backhoe over something with a wooden mm -hmm. casket in or the whole thing will collapse. But back in the day it was specifically because like a standard person couldn't pry open a uh metal mm -hmm. burial vault. Um you can also see burial cages and you can see these all over the place in graves dating from the late 1700s to mid-1800s in the United States. Major cities, there's tons of them in Baltimore and Philadelphia. Of course, in Baltimore in the spookiest Ooh. of seasons. Um, <laughs> you can see they just look like little grates that extend a little bit out of the surface. But if you kind of uh, let your mind move back to this era, you can intuit that a cage is going all the way around the coffin. I've seen pictures of that. I've seen pictures of, of the grates rising up out of the surface and uh, surrounding the burial plot. I've seen that. That's creepy. I mean, maybe for zombie purposes, we should be right, really thinking exactly. about that. I mean, 2020 still has a couple months left. I'm not ruling it out. Yeah. And if you are thinking to yourself, young medical student who's listening to this, surely my college did not do this. If your college, your medical school existed in the Western Hemisphere before the 1850s, this absolutely happened at your medical school. And, and there is going to be evidence of it somewhere in those records. Thankfully, we have gotten so much better about this. The Uniform Anatomical Gift Act in the 1960s in the United States has created regulations on body donation programs and now they're all very ethical and very above board and it's a great way to add to the human-centered education in medical school but we can't like ignore this being a part of that lineage so i think it's worth acknowledging at this time but it's also like real creepy that an entire industry arose to supply cadavers. God damn it, I hate to say it, but the market provides. 
I hate to say it. You know, um, Atlas shrugged on this one. And, you know, maybe it's fitting that in a podcast that talked about a phenomenon that was made possible and definitely exacerbated by the Industrial Revolution, we end this portion of it by talking about the commodification of the dead body in the name of industry. It may be asserted without hesitation that no event is so terribly well adapted to inspire the supremeness of bodily and mental distress as is the burial before death. The unendurable oppression of the lungs, the stifling fumes from the damp earth, the clinging to the death garments, the rigid embrace of the narrow house, the blackness of the absolute night, the silence like a sea that overwhelms, the unseen but palpable presence of the conqueror worm. These things, with the thoughts of the air and grass above, with memory of dear friends who would fly to save us if but informed of our fate, and with the consciousness that of this fate they can never be informed that our hopeless portion is that of the really dead. These considerations, I say, carry into the heart which still palpitates a degree of appalling and intolerable horror from which the most daring imagination must recoil. We know of nothing so agonizing upon earth. We can dream of nothing half so hideous in the realms of the nethermost hell, and thus all narratives upon this topic have an interest profound, an interest, nevertheless, which through the sacred awe of the topic itself very properly and very peculiarly depends upon our conviction of the truth of the matter narrated. What I have now to tell is of my own actual knowledge of my own positive and personal experience. For several years I had been subject to attacks of the singular disorder which physicians have agreed to term catalepsy, in default of a more definitive title. Although both the immediate and the predisposing causes and even the actual diagnosis of this disease are still mysterious, its obvious and apparent character is sufficiently well understood. Its variations seem to be chiefly of degree. Sometimes the patient lies for a day only, or even for a shorter period in a species of exaggerated lethargy. He is senseless and externally motionless, but the pulsation of the heart is still fairly perceptible. Some traces of warmth remain. A slight color lingers within the center of the cheek, and upon application of a mirror to the lips, we can detect a torpid, unequal, and vacillating action of the lungs. Then again, the duration of the trance is for weeks, even for months. While the closest scrutiny and the most rigorous medical tests fail to establish any material distinction between the state of the sufferer and what we conceive of absolute death, very usually he is saved from premature interment solely by the knowledge of his friends that he has been previously subject to catalepsy, by the consequent suspicion excited, and, above all, by the non-appearance of decay. The advances of the malady are, luckily, gradual. The first manifestations, although marked, are unequivocal. The fits grow successfully more and more distinctive and endure each for a longer term than the preceding. In this lies the principal security for inhumation. The unfortunate whose first attack should be of the extreme character which is occasionally seen would almost inevitably be consigned alive to the tomb. My own case differed in no important particular from those mentioned in medical books. Sometimes, without any apparent cause, I sank, little by little, into a condition of hemisyncope, 
or half swoon. And in this condition, without pain, without the ability to stir, or, strictly speaking, to think, but with a dull, lethargic consciousness of life and of the presence of those who surrounded my bed, I remained until the crisis of the disease restored me, suddenly, to perfect sensation. At other times I was quickly and impetuously smitten. I grew sick and numb and chilly and dizzy and so fell prostrate at once. Then, for weeks, all was void and black and silent, and nothing became the universe. Total annihilation could be no more. From these latter attacks I awoke, however, with a gradation slow in proportion to the suddenness of the seizure. Just as the day dawns to the friendliness of the houseless beggar who roams the streets throughout the long, desolate winter night, just so tardily, just so wearily, just so cheerily came back the light of the soul to me. Apart from the tendency to trance, however, my general health appeared to be good, nor could I perceive that it was at all affected by the one prevalent malady, unless, indeed, an idiosyncrasy in my ordinary sleep may be looked upon as superinduced. Upon waking from slumber, I could never again at once through possession of my senses, and always remained for many minutes in much bewilderment and perplexity. The mental faculties in general, but the memory in especial being in a condition of absolute abeyance. In all that I endured, there was no physical suffering, but of moral distress and infinitude. My fancy grew charnel. I talked of worms, of tombs, and epitaphs. I was lost in the reveries of death and the idea of premature burial held continual possession of my brain. The ghastly danger to which I was subjected haunted me day and night. In the former, the torture of meditation was excessive, in the latter, supreme. When the grim darkness overspread the earth, then, with every horror of thought, I shook, shook as the quivering plumes upon the hearse, when nature could endure wakefulness no longer, it was with a struggle that I consented to sleep. For I shuddered to reflect that upon waking, I might find myself the tenant of a grave. And when finally I sank into slumber, it was only to rush at once into a world of phantasms, above which with vast sable overshadowing wings hovered predominant the one sepulchral idea from the innumerable images of gloom which thus oppressed me in dreams, I select for record but a solitary vision. I thought it was immersed in a cataleptic trance of more than usual duration and profundity. Suddenly, there came an icy hand upon my forehead, and an impatient, gibbering voice whispered the word, Arise! within my ear. I sat erect. The darkness was total. I could not see the figure of him who had aroused me. I could call to mind neither the period at which I had fallen into the trance, nor the locality in which I then lay. While I remained motionless and busied in endeavors to collect my thought, the cold hand grasped me fiercely by the wrist, shaking it petulantly while the gibbering voice said again, Arise! Did I not bid thee arise? And who... I demanded, art thou? I have no name in the regions which I inhabit. I was mortal, but am fiend. I was merciless, but am pitiful. Dost thou feel that I shudder? My teeth chatter as I speak. Yet it is not with the chillness of the night. Of the night without end. But this hideousness is insufferable. How canst thou tranquilly sleep? I cannot rest for the cry of these great agonies. These sights are more than I can bear. Get thee up. Come with me into the outer night. And let me explore to thee the grave. Is not this a spectacle of woe? 
behold. I looked, and the unseen figure which still grasped me by the wrist had caused to be thrown open the graves of all mankind, and from each issued the faint phosphoric radiance of decay so that I could see into the innermost recesses, and their view the shrouded bodies in their sad and solemn slumbers with the worm, but alas, the real sleepers were fewer by many millions than those who slumbered not at all, and there was a feeble struggling, and there was a general sad unrest, and from out of the depths the countless pits there came a melancholy rustling from garments of the buried, and of those who seemed tranquilly to repose, I saw that a vast number had changed in a greater or less degree the rigid and uneasy position in which they had originally been entombed and the voice again said to me as i gazed is it not oh is it not a pitiful sight but before i could find words to reply the figure had ceased to grab my wrist the phosphoric lights expired and the graves were closed with a sudden violence while from out them arose a tumult of despairing cries saying again is it not oh god is it not a very pitiful sight fantasies such as these presenting themselves at night extended their terrific influence far into the waking hours. My nerves became thoroughly unstrung, and I fell prey to a perpetual horror. I hesitated to ride or to walk or to indulge in any exercise that would carry me from home. In fact, I no longer dared to trust myself out of the immediate presence of those who were aware of my proneness to catalepsy, lest, falling into one of my usual fits, I should be buried before my real condition could be ascertained. I doubted the care, the fidelity of my dearest friends. I dreaded that in some trance of more than customary duration, they might be prevailed upon to regard me as irrecoverable. I even went so far as to fear that, as I occasioned much trouble, they might be glad to consider any very protracted attack as sufficient excuse for getting rid of me altogether. It was in vain they endeavored to reassure me by the most solemn promises. I exacted the most sacred oath that under no circumstance they would bury me until decomposition had so materially advanced as to render further preservation impossible, and even then my mortal terrors would listen to no reason, would accept no consolation. I entered into a series of elaborate precautions. Among other things, I had the family vault so remodeled as to admit of being readily opened from within. The slightest pressure upon a long lever that extended far into the tomb would cause the iron portal to fly back. There were arrangements also for the free admission of air and light and convenient receptacles for food and water within immediate reach of the coffin intended for my reception. This coffin was warmly and softly padded and was provided with a lid fashioned upon the principle of the vault door. With the addition of springs so contrived that the feeblest movement of the body would be sufficient to set it at liberty. Besides all this, there was suspended from the roof of the tomb a large bell, the rope of which it was designed should extend through a hole in the coffin and so be fastened to one of the hands of the corpse. But alas, what avails the vigilance against the destiny of man? Not even these well-contrived securities suffice to save from the uttermost agonies of living inhumation, a wretch to these agonies foredoomed. There arrived an epoch, as often before there had arrived, in which I found myself emerging from total unconsciousness into the first feeble and indefinite sense of existence. Slowly, with a tortoise gradation, approached the faint gray dawn of the physical day. A torpid uneasiness and apathetic endurance of dull pain, no care, no hope, no effort. Then, after a long interval, a ringing in the ears. Then, after a lapse still longer, a prickling or tingling sensation in the extremities. 
then a seemingly eternal period of pleasurable quiescence, during which the awakening feelings are struggling into thought, then a brief resinking into non-entity, then a sudden recovery. At length the slight quivering of an eyelid, and immediately thereupon an electric shock of terror, deadly and indefinite, which sends the blood in torrents from the temples to the heart, and now the first positive effort to think and now the first endeavor to remember, and now a partial and evanescent success, and now the memory has so far regained its dominion that in some measure I am cognizant of my state. I feel that I am not awaking from ordinary sleep. I recollect I have been subject to catalepsy, and now at last, as if by the rush of an ocean, my shuddering spirit is overwhelmed by the one grim danger, by the one spectral and ever-prevalent idea. For some minutes after this fancy possessed me, I remained without motion. And why? I could not summon the courage to move. I dared not make the effort which was to satisfy me of my fate, and yet there was something at my heart which whispered it was sure. Despair. Such as no other species of wretchedness ever calls into being, despair alone urged me. After long irresolution to uplift the heavy lids of my eyes, I uplifted them. It was dark. All dark. I knew that fit was over. I knew that the crisis of my disorder had long passed. I knew that I had fully recovered the use of my visual faculties, and yet it was dark. All dark. The intense and utter raylessness of the night that endureth forevermore. I endeavored to shriek, my lips and my parched tongue moved convulsively together in the attempt, but no voice issued from the cavernous lungs which, oppressed as if by the weight of some incumbent mountain, gasped and palpitated with the heart at every elaborate and struggling inspiration. The movement of the jaws in this effort to cry aloud showed me that they were bound up, as is usual with the dead. I felt that I lay upon some hard substance, and by something similar my sides were also closely compressed. So far I had not ventured to stir any of the limbs, but now I violently threw up my arms, which had been lying at length with the wrists crossed. They struck a solid wooden substance, which extended above my person at an elevation of not more than six inches from my face, I could no longer doubt that I reposed within a coffin at last. And now, amid all my infinite miseries, came sweetly the cherub, hope, for I thought of my precautions. I writhed and made spasmodic exertions to force open the lid. It would not move. I felt my wrists for the bell rope. It was not to be found. And now the comforter fled forever, and a still sterner despair reigned triumphant, for I could not help perceiving the absence of the paddings which I had so carefully prepared, and then too there came suddenly to my nostrils the strong peculiar odor of moist earth. The conclusion was irresistible. I was not within the vault, I had fallen into a trance while absent from home while among strangers, when or how I could not remember, and it was they who had buried me as a dog, nailed up in some common coffin, and thrust deep, deep and forever into some ordinary and nameless grave. As this awful conviction forced itself thus into the innermost chambers of my soul, I once again struggled to cry aloud, and in the second endeavor I succeeded. A long, wild, and continuous shriek or yell of agony resounded through the realms of the subterranean night. 
Hello. Hello there. What the devil's the matter now? Get out of that. What do you mean by yowling in that there kind of style? Like a, like a catamount? And hereupon I was seized and shaken without ceremony for several minutes by a hunto of very rough-looking individuals. They did not arouse me from my slumber, for I was wide awake when I screamed. But they restored me to the full possession of my memory. This adventure occurred near Richmond in Virginia, accompanied by a friend I had proceeded upon a gunning expedition some miles down the banks of the James River. Night approached, and we were overtaken by a storm, lying at anchor in the stream and laden with garden mold afforded us the only available shelter. We made the best of it and passed the night on board. I slept in one of the only two berths in the vessel, and the berths of a sloop of sixty or twenty tons need scarcely be described. That which I occupied had no bedding of any kind. Its extreme width was eighteen inches. The distance of its bottom from the deck overhead was precisely the same. I found it a matter of exceeding difficulty to squeeze myself in. Nevertheless, I slept soundly in the whole of my vision, for it was no dream and no nightmare, arose naturally from the circumstances of my position. From my ordinary bias of thought and from the difficulty to which I have alluded, of collecting my senses, and especially of regaining my memory, for a long time after awaking from my slumber. The men who shook me were the crew of the sloop, and some laborers engaged to unload it. From the load itself came the earthy smell. The bandage about my jaws was a silk handkerchief in which I had bound up my head in default of my customary nightcap. The tortures endured, however, were indubitably quite equal for the time to those of actual sepulture. They were fearfully, they were inconceivably hideous, but out of evil proceeded good, for their very excess wrought in my spirit an inevitable revulsion. My soul acquired tone, acquired temper. I went abroad. I took vigorous exercise. I breathed the free air of heaven. I thought upon other subjects than death. I discarded my medical books. Bukan, I burned. I read no night thoughts. No fustian about churchyards, no bugaboo tales such as this. In short, I became a new man and lived a man's life. From that memorable night I dismissed forever my charnel apprehensions and with them vanquished the cataleptic disorder, of which perhaps they had been less the consequence than the cause. There are moments when, even to the sober eye of reason, the world of our sad humanity may assume the semblance of a hell. But the imagination of man is no carathis to explore with impunity its every cavern. Alas! The grim legion of sepulchral terrors cannot be regarded as altogether fanciful, but like the demons in whose company Ephrasiab made his voyage down the Oxus, they must sleep, or they will devour us. They must be suffered to slumber, or we perish.